0: This is Lorelei, aka Ripe Avocado, and today's episode on the agenda, we're going to talk about racial ecologies, that book that we talked about during the last episode, except for this time we've actually read some of it. Um, so I first want to talk a little bit more about the book and the purpose and why we're reading it then a few more details about the book, and then I have a super special guest uh, on the show today. But first, let's talk about you. You, my dear listener, um, are probably in one of these two camps. The first is you are reading this book, which is great. You already have a background understanding um, and kind of know where each of these episodes is being like inspired from that's awesome. You can just sit back and enjoy. And then the second camp that you might be in is that you're not reading along. This is fine, this is planned, and this is probably most of you. Um, You're listening just because you want to hear more about environmental justice, and you can kind of take comfort in the fact that there is a text and other stuff and other resources that you can reference if you ever wanted to, but you don't need to read anything whatsoever to be on the same page as all the listeners for these episodes. They're not lectures. You won't fall behind. This is fine, so yeah, just sit back and relax. All right, so to recap um, Racial Ecologies, it's a collection of works co edited by Leilani Nishime and Kim D. Hester Williams. Leilani Nishime is a professor of communication at the University of Washington. Kim D. Hester Williams is a professor of English and literature at Sonoma State University. It has five parts. And each part is three chapters, so what I'm going to do is dedicate one episode for each part, for three chapters at a time, you know, and um, this one is diving into part one. And the purpose of this is um, to be, like, exploratory. On the podcast, I'm just going to give a short synopsis of what the chapters we read are about, and I'm going to let that lead us into a larger discussion or a broader discussion of environmentalism and environmental racism. Again, you're welcome to read along with us. I'll post a link in the episode notes of where you can purchase the book, but it's not necessary. Although highly, highly encouraged, but don't feel like you'll miss out if you don't or miss out on the podcast if you don't read the book. Um, so this uh, book, Racial Ecologies, it's a look on environmentalism from an ethnic studies perspective. And my takeaways, like what this book really is, is about intersectionality and the intersection of being an environmentalist And experiencing racism, and the people is about the people that fall into that overlap, and how they are heroes every single day. Um, and essentially, we want to, um, we want to communicate that the environmentalism pitched to us in social media, in mainstream media, is like a settler environmentalism view, really, and that environment environmentalism has long preceded the climate crisis and long preceded white man's appreciation for nature and the claim that we have to protect him, or i sorry, protect it, to protect nature. To summarize each of the chapters in a couple of short sentences, chapter one is it approaches environmentalism from a native perspective, and it provides a few examples of environmental racism Particularly, and one of the one one of the examples that it spends the most time on is the North Dakota or is the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is an oil pipeline that is one thousand and one hundred seventy miles long from western South Dakota to southern Illinois. And the backstory, uh, you already know about this, but you know just just in case you don't, the original route was chose that was chosen for the pipeline was passing a little too close to white people for their comfort, so a revised route brought it closer to the primary drinking water source for the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. And my friend Anpo is going to talk a little bit about this event soon um, because she is from South Dakota, and she's also going to... She's just super powerful, and I really admire her, and I just think that, you know... Everyone needs to listen to Anpo, and I just love the way that she speaks. So she's going to talk to us later. Moving on. Chapter two is a an overview of, again, environmentalism and a critique of environmentalism from an Africana Studies perspective, and it covers a lot of things, but it mostly, at least what I got from it, is that it like challenges the view that um, black people are incapable of having an ecological perspective in the environments that they inhabit because for so long and to some extent they still are not seen as whole people with many qualities and it talks a lot about um, right uh, how this isn't true. Then the third chapter is a little bit different. It talks about lyricism which is a, like an artistic expression or emotion in a way that is creative and beautiful and imaginative. And it talks about using this tool, using lyricism to convey environmentalism in art and why it's not done enough and why it's not done already. And it talks a lot about this novel by Teju Cole called open city and it's from the perspective of a Nigerian doctor and while it's not about environmentalism it does talk about topics like segregation in New York City and it praises this novel's use of lyricism as an example. And like one of the critiques in this chapter is that science is an imperfect instrument which I totally agree science isn't everything because as we've seen in this administration I cry all the time about this is that like you can have all of the science in the world, but if you don't have people to listen to that science or people to care or for people to digest that science, it doesn't matter. Like you can have all of the data, and if the political will and care isn't there, the science falls flat and it just stays in the lab and nothing ever comes of it, which is depressing, but that is why we're here. And that is why this podcast exists is to um, communicate that to people and make people care a little bit. So science and, you know, environment crashing and burning, but fun. All right. So I think that after this, um, yeah, so that's the three chapters. Uh, If you're interested in this, please read uh, racial ecologies. I'll post a link of where you can get this book. And I think now I want to jump into my interview of Anpo Jensen, my dear friend. We met in a class at Stanford and um, I guess like a little disclaimer, we did this over Zoom so please be patient because there are like places, there are little spots where our call like dropped or it got kind of caught out or cut out or was spotty so and again this is a very beginner podcast by a very beginner podcaster super low budget so please be patient with us and the quality very lo-fi podcast here um but you know we're doing our best with what we have and there was something else I wanted to say oh yeah just trust that the content is better than the quality in this interview and thank you for bearing with me and I love you okay uh, yeah, Ambo's going to talk now.
1: My name is Ambo Jensen. I'm from Piner, South Dakota. I am in Okulala, Lakota, movement, studying environmental uh, engineering. Um, I did the dual program, the coaching program. So both my undergraduate and my master's program were in environmental engineering. And I come from the so that's the community I belong to in South Dakota. I'm very passionate about a lot of things, but one of them is just rewriting the narrative um, wherever I go, because I feel like being a Native student, a lot of people give me rhetorics or narratives that they have already, their narratives and their rhetorics. and I have to do whatever I can to rewrite it, no matter what it is. Um, So yeah, that's something that I've been practicing.
0: Thanks for giving the pod some of your time, Anpo. Uh, I know that we already talked about this book I'm reading, but to recap, the first section seeks to, as you said, rewrite the narrative of what environmentalism is. And specifically, it describes the way different racialized groups are in fact leaders of environmental protection by necessity, which is the opposite of how they are often portrayed. Um, And one of the chapters uses the 2016 Dakota Access Pipeline construction and its protests as an example. And I know that this is in your home state. So if I may ask, do you mind sharing what you remember about it, like where you were, how you first heard about it, et cetera? Yeah. um, So I returned home from a summer internship
1: and yeah, I just went home back to, I went back to the Res in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Um, I'm Okoa Lokota, so <laughs> that's, where, that's where I grew up. Um, and the, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe is um, a band of the Lakotas. Uh, so they are mostly in so that was a band of us. Um, so we view them as like our really close relatives. And um, we got, we heard that we've seen videos on Facebook. Um, I saw the tractors come in, people started posting about it and being like, really really alarmed that this was happening and from the videos there was about like 15 to 20 people there um, and then eventually you know my mom maina and my family was like we should go up there um, and so when, when we went up there it was very very small there wasn't a lot of people there uh, there were communities that were getting established um, they kind of organized themselves and like the gwalas would stay here then Stay here and from what I've heard that it derived from a lot of the community community members um, first that were opposing the pipeline so like a lot of the information that we got was through Facebook uh, which I thought was really is really interesting because at the time we had like this this course between like media being untrustworthy so you had other news sources coming in like unicorn riot um, like personal accounts where Becoming the main news source
0: for everything that was happening. Yeah, Um, it is like to that point, it is really interesting how both like social media both can push a lot of misinformation and be like the source of a lot of misleading information. But when like mainstream media refuses to cover really important stories, um, people turn to social media to actually like to get their own news out and like raise awareness.
1: Yeah, so that, was, so that was definitely happening at the very, very beginning. And it became a really useful tool. Um, so yeah, that's we went up there. <laughs> Me, my mother, my sisters, we all went up there together. We camped. Um, and it was really kind of beautiful at the beginning because there was a lot of old people and elders. You know, the tribe, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the standing Sioux tribe called other tribes like the Cheyenne River Um, who's also the Oglalas to send people up there. Um, And when I got there, there were busloads of people from Pine Ridge that were there. Um, But it was really beautiful. People were setting up teepees, grandparents were there, and it was kind of a community thing. And then, (laughs) yeah, then from there, it just escalated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I was there for about a week, and then I left, my parents went back, Back, and then I came back again, and it got bigger. Um, came back with friends, and it was way like much bigger. When we went up there, it was like around August, September, and then I went back to school. But after that, it started to get much, much worse. Um, and something that was really interesting is on even on campus, on Stanford's campus, it started to break out where people were starting to do demonstrations. They put up a TV in the main quad or not the Midwest, um, white plaza area. Um, a lot of native activists started you know, vocalizing their concern, the community center started getting together and doing things. So it became a, like a movement on campus. And what was really impressive was someone started a check-in on Facebook to kind of dissuade the police department in that area um, or confuse them and said there was this like floating like, thing on Facebook that said, check in so that we can support these protesters.
0: I remember seeing that too. I I saw the post where people were being asked to check in, even if they weren't at the protest, so that police wouldn't target based on people's location. Yeah,
1: so I thought that was really crazy how that happened. And I think from there, it just kind of blew up on Facebook. Everybody was checking in, like, Pretty soon you could just check the camp page on Facebook and there was like thousands and thousands of people from everywhere that were checking in. That was kind of what was happening. It was just like slowly like snowballing into what we like, like what everybody seemed like later on with the police and the the private military or private security. Um, Yeah, but um, I've had friends who were there the entire time um, and who've been, like tear gassed and shot with bullets and were on the front lines um and at the time a lot of native students were um a lot of native students actually caravaned out there from stanford to to support it um yeah so and this is interesting um i've had a number of friends report that ever since they've been sprayed they've had a hard time breathing um so they're a harder time breathing and they've had like kind of a little bit of coughing happening so they think that the stuff that they were sprayed with was kind of um, bad for them like laced in some way um, i know a lot of the pictures say it's water um, mm-hmm. but you never know and i think with like all the police brutality happening now like i wouldn't put it fast them um that something like that happened
0: yeah how far away is the, like the actual site for that pipeline from your home?
1: So I'm from like the south uh southwest corner of South Dakota and the standing suit tribe is located north, uh like much more north than I am. So they're about like I don't know, maybe like four hours away, four or five hours away, I think. Nobody quote me. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's, it's pretty, it's very far from Pine Ridge. Um, pretty far. So it does have a large impact on, a larger impact on like the Cheyenne River tribe and the Rock Diego tribe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what's really fascinating is like before, like we had the 1868 and um, 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, which kind of designated a lot of South Dakota as uh, our territory and that pipeline went through treaty territory so it didn't go through the rest it went right by the rest um, but it was still they tried to say it was uh, private land or so or whatever but the whole like though it's remarkable because like the whole area of South Dakota is like literally all our like treaty territory uh, and just recently you've seen that uh, Oklahoma got um, a lot of tribes got their, like half of Oklahoma now belongs to those tribes.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, because they were honoring the treaties. Thank you for that recap. This is all very informative and I'm sure that it was pretty isolating to be forced to go back to school um, and to spend your time at Stanford when all of this was happening back home. Um, so another part of, of this first chapter that is, like, setting the stage for rethinking what we think environmentalism is, and, like, rethinking our, um, our idea of nature, right? Like, as people who enjoy, like, as settler people who enjoy nature, we tend to think of it as, like, a pristine place that is, like, untouched by man, but that is, like, not true. Um, and they talk about how, like, this, perception of what nature is, like, an, uh, like a virgin land, if you will, or whatever, completely erases the fact that people lived there, that na- like Native people lived there and were removed um, from there. So, I, I like, another part that is discussed in this is how Native people are always talked about as part of the past and never part of the future or, like, part of the present. Um, and I know that's something that, like, you've told me Offhand and on a different occasion. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, my favorite topic. <laughs>
0: um, so, okay,
1: so I mean, I am an indigenous woman and I am studying environmental engineering. And partly because, you know, because of the, that perspective that you just uh, eloquently described is just not known. Um, the relationships indigenous people have had with our environment has always been a two-way relationship to where like I'm no different like than the land and the land's so different than me. And um so for that to be like kind of a core indigenous philosophy, imagine sitting in a class as like an Indigenous woman and they're talking about this, this idea of land being pristine and untouched and that's the only way it can thrive. Um, When we're learning that if you don't nurture it and if you don't steward it, like the environment has like these insane consequences um, that are like really, really bad, like the wildfires, you know, we took that class and uh, what we learned was that wildfires are rampant across the globe and partly because indigenous policy, anti-indigenous policy that began earlier in like the 1800s, it was actually anti-indigenous rhetoric from the very beginning and that in itself has its consequences and we're seeing it now um, through climate change, um, through wildfires, through like all kinds of like shortages that we're like, um, like harming biodiversity so yeah, it's it's that's why I'm attracted to this um, this topic, and yeah, I don't know if I'm rambling. You can keep me, you can restart the question. But um.
0: no, it's perfect because okay, multiple things. A, you're not rambling. What you're saying is perfect. B, I know that you're not reading this book along with me, but the chapter, like referring to what you just said earlier. This chapter is literally called we are the land and the land is us and that's like word for word exactly what you had just said. I am a strong advocate that
1: you can't plan for a win against climate change without indigenous people. And like that you know, just it's just not going to happen because from the very beginning when we think about capitalism and we think about just the development of the United States and the development, uh, like the United States isn't even that old, like it's like 200 years old. Um, and you, you think about the very, very beginning from the moment that they stepped foot on the land, there was anti-Indigenous rhetoric. Um, and this rhetoric um, sometimes isn't as obvious, like we've seen with wildfires, Smokey the Red Bear, um, you know, was something that was a tool to suppress wildfires. Um, but who's creating these policies to be um, anti-wildfire? It's, it's essentially mostly white men um, who don't have an understanding of indigenous people and the way they've interacted with the land and the way they have, um, because they haven't been, seen, like the indigenous people have seen as intelligent, they haven't been seen as engineers or innovative and they have not been seen as like like physicians and healers um and it's because of the ignorance that has come like overseas like that that is like literally america's like lasting legacy is um from the moment that they stepped on this land the way they viewed us the way they viewed people um we've seen like even with slavery like it's, that's where that's where it all begins um and so a lot, of the, a lot of the 1800s, they've developed policies specifically to target indigenous people, um, to take away their land, take away their rights, to do whatever they can to disrupt their way of life. So for my people, it was like easily the buffalo, like they figured out that that was our, basically our economy and they destroyed and eradicated all of the buffalo. So that made us dependent on, you know, um, it made us change our lifestyle and it made us dependent on the government um for like more western foods and western a more western lifestyle um so i really think that revitalization cultural revitalization for all indigenous people no matter where they are in the world is the key and one of the my biggest hopes And uh i guess you know, adapting to climate change and curbing climate change. Um, right now, what I'm seeing, and I'm the, one of as one of the only like native students in like this course or this program, which is not. It's just it shouldn't be that way. There should be more, and there should be more people from these communities there. Um, I shouldn't have to be the only one there to say that. Hey, you are forgetting that these people live in California and they have had like thousands and thousands of years of experience with wildfires. Um, If wildfires are such a big problem, why aren't they included in the sports? Why are we just worried about Silicon Valley? Why are we just worried about places of development? So my hope in the future is that indigenous people are not just heard, they're included in climate change adaptation plans. And my hope is that, you know, it's just really really hard you have to you have to go back from the very beginning and they have to acknowledge that you like, you know we, this is what we did to native people this is what this is how we've seen them and why did we see them that way um why didn't they, why don't they validate like our medicines why don't they validate like our even our engineering methods um and so <laughs> i think that's a them problem but what i see for us <laughs> indigenous people and for you know all minorities too is to um just kind of focus that we we knew all along, like we know who we are and we know that the solutions that we have um, in stewarding the land and in taking care of like our relationships um, that are beyond us, um, like and that, that's where it's at. The problem is they don't see it as an opportunity, they see it as a handout or they see it as us just taking care of this group of people or this minority or whatever, like they're doing us a favor. And I was taught from the very beginning as a young person, as a young woman in developing that this isn't a handout. This is treaty obligation. Wherever they live, they have a obligation to honor the treaties that they entered in with those indigenous people within America, within anywhere else in the world. It's an obligation and I think that's what they need to, they need to realize they're not doing me a favor. (laughs) You're actually dooming yourself by not listening um, to these other voices, to these other perspectives. Um, So that's kind of a mix of what I hope for the future and this anti-Indigenous rhetoric um, because Indigenous people are all over the world. It's just, it just hasn't been packaged that way. Um, There's more, I believe there's more Indigenous people (laughs) that are all over the world than there are others. Um, you know, there's this phrase, I didn't coin in this phrase, but there's this phrase that the future is
0: indigenous.
1: And I think this is kind of what, what they mean by
0: that. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That was beautifully said, everything that you said. And I think that, yeah, it made me think about a lot of things. Just, right, the lack of diversity in our program, in In general, considering how much, like, how much capital, like how much the identity of capitalism and imperialism is like taking away people, like taking away the environment from people who have lived there and us studying the environment and how to engineer it for people when it had already belonged to someone, you know, when it had already belonged to people. It's like, who are we really engineering for? And That's definitely like a hole in our curriculum where we're not taught that. Um, And speaking of holes in our curriculum, like you and I were in this wildfire class together and a lot of like, all of it was new to me. I'll be honest. All of it was new to me. And we were taught the, like the history of wildfire policy um, in the whole United States. And then also very specifically California. And we learned the history of California wildfire policy and how it became like part of the American psyche that all fires are bad and then the United States and California also specifically like enabled or put into place like a put out the fire no matter what kind of policy (laughs) like that's not that's not eloquently said but um and we've seen a lot of like lot of um what's it called consequences because of that right we have like the accumulation of leaf litter and like tree debris that from lands that like aren't maintained and then with hotter temperatures and drier climates due to climate change in some regions we get like worse wildfires where they like burn more than they would originally and like after a lot of like studying you know western settlers studying Um, and, like, debating, and shit, (laughs) I don't know how else to say this, like, they've come to the conclusion that, like, oh, some wildfires are good, and prescribed burns can be part of the solution, when, like, Native people have been doing that all along as part of their practices, right? It's like, they've come, like, it took them that long, I don't know how many years, maybe I'll look it up, but it took them that long to come to this solution that had been in place already by Native people, and they could have just asked, you know, they could, it's like they could have just asked or listened to people instead of going through all of the things that we're going through now. Yeah, and it's,
1: it's, it's difficult because, like, people wouldn't really see it that way, um, because I guess, like, if you don't have what, like, you don't know anything about Indigenous people, which is another problem like most people just have no idea about anything um, and it's not necessarily their fault but it is their responsibility to catch up and to learn um, yeah so i think that's another thing too is a lot of the times these things aren't credited they're taken they're learned they're studied they're published and
0: then you never see them again um, right when we like we're starting to more now but who is going to get the credit for prescribed burns? The like, white men who published papers about it, you know, like the second wave of people, like these, the second wave of people who thought it was a good idea. I think, yeah, I think that our wildfire class could have definitely had more and included more. Yeah. I think the
1: TA Rebecca was really good at being super thorough and mentioning like everything she could. Um, uh, yeah, she definitely made that class really like well-rounded um, as much as she could. But
0: yeah, so definitely could be more. But <laughs> yeah, no, I could, yeah, I could tell she was she's was really trying to be holistic about it and be well-rounded too. First, for a class that had so many guest speakers, you know, they had they like they needed more native. Speaker. Like, they needed any, they didn't have any. They needed a native speaker, an indigenous person to come and speak and give a lecture.
1: Yes, I mean, that's, I, that's something that I brought up to one of the professors, and I had a lot of excitement about it. Um, but, you know, he, <laughs> he actually kind of told me, you know, like, if you want to do that, like, why don't you go to the native community and post something there? And I'm like, Why, like, like, in engineering, like, why can't it be held in an engineering spotlight? Um, Which was really confusing to me. Um, But I ended up not doing it. I never followed through and carrying out, um, bringing in another indigenous um, woman who has a lot of wisdom and fires, which would have been really beneficial to everybody, but because he wasn't too supportive or open-minded to it. I think I kind of didn't want to deal with it.
0: It's Lorelei just me this time. Uh, I, what I want to do right now is lead us into a guided meditation where we imagine that I had a smooth transition from Anpo's interview into the end of this episode and announcements. I did thank her for her time and we talked about lighter things after this, but they weren't captured in the recording um, and, you know, that's okay. Things like that happen. Um, so a few things. Thank you for listening. Thank you for my reading group with whom I talk about the different chapters in racial ecologies with. A special thank you to um, Anpo, of course, for being the guest on this episode. And while the purpose of this episode wasn't specifically to talk about wildfires, you know, it was one piece among many, keep an eye out for the next episode because I end up interviewing the TA for my wildfire class Rebecca Miller she's a PhD candidate at Stanford and her whole PhD research is on wildfires. so she's going to give a really also great and in-depth interview about that coincidentally I don't know if this is a coincidence but I guess interestingly this episode was recorded this interview was recorded before the wildfires and now California is raining ashes and I was able to score an interview with Rebecca so we'll have a relevant episode I guess out of disasters and climate change come really great teaching material and lessons that we can learn so um yeah keep an eye out for that episode and with that we can move on to my favorite section of the pod which is the gnarly poop story section Um, For this episode, we had somebody write in their gnarliest poop story, so I'm going to read that out loud. I don't think my gnarliest poop story is that gnarly, but here goes. It took place during a two-week-long bus trip I took with my girlfriend and her family friends. The tour bus started in Hermosillo, near the north of Mexico, although I got there via a couple overnight buses from Tijuana on the border with San Diego, which I had gotten to via a nine-hour drive from the SF Bay Area. The tour bus then drove all around Mexico, from Mazatlán to Mexico City, all the way down to Chiapas and into Guatemala and many places in between well over 3,000 miles of sitting in a small, non-reclinable seat at the very back of the bus, both day and night, in order to travel so much distance in so little time. Whether these details played into my poop story or not is unknown, but they may have. Something to know about me is that I'm very regular. The first thing I do every morning, without fail, is sit on the porcelain throne and get it done. Not on this trip ever since the start of the trip nothing and we ate plenty perhaps even more than i usually eat the days went on and nothing i wasn't physic it wasn't physically bothering me either which is odd it was mostly mental how have i not pooped yet it's been days i couldn't go even if i tried i don't remember exactly how many days i went without pooping but i'd estimate at least 5 <laughs> During one of the many fuel snack and bathroom stops the tour bus would make, I finally felt the urge. I got in line along with the 50 other tourists to use the gas station bathroom and waited my turn. I paid a few pesos to the bathroom attendant in exchange for a few squares of toilet paper and went in. I crouched over the empty toilet and laid down something I never knew I was capable of. A giant heap with a consistency of thick cement pour. In an effort to forget that moment and the remaining tourists a chance, wait, in an effort to forget that moment and the remaining tourists a chance, oh, and to give the remaining tourists a chance in the stall as soon as possible, I tried flushing the poor toilet only to see the water level go right to the brim. I knew that if I had tried flushing one more time, the bathroom flood would flow, the bathroom would flood with that vile slurry. Uh this is this is very vivid. Um okay. I walked out and told the bathroom attendant in front of everyone else waiting in line, it's clogged. <laughs> the poor woman went in with a plunger and came out momentarily saying that it wasn't and that it flushed fine. I'll never know if she was telling the truth or if she backed me up or if she was backing me up to make it seem to the rest of the tour bus that little old me could never clog a toilet. Either way, I was very thankful for the moment. I I was very thankful the moment was over and I could move on. I'm back to my regular self since then. This one's good. This one's gross. I think my favorite part is when he tells the bathroom attendant it's clogged. Because if he was in Mexico, then he probably told the bathroom attendant in Spanish. And what's really funny about Spanish is that you can say... Like, you can kind of avoid responsibility and like in the way that you phrase things so you don't have to say I clogged the toilet you can just say exactly that like it's clogged and in Spanish it'd be like se tapo which kind of means like it clogged itself and I can only imagine someone who had clogged the toilet just say that that sounds funny (laughs) okay well thank you anonymous pooper for writing this in I encourage everyone else to write in their gnarliest poop stories at trees and PhDs at gmail.com, that is TREES and PHDs, every word fully spelled out, at gmail.com. Thank you. I also want to thank Dr. Shelley Strebe from University of California, San Diego. She is a professor there who teaches an ethnic studies course and uses the book Racial Ecologies for her class as um, teaching material. And she was very kind and provided me with some of the PowerPoints and other written materials that she uses for her class so that I can use it and adapt from it for this podcast. So I'm very appreciative for that. And of course, I got the um, sound effects from freesound.org. And I want to thank them because they use a like Creative Commons license so I can use this. Let's see. The elevator music was by J.U. on freesound.org. The toilet flushing was by the account Lawrence Gilner. And then um, the magic sound just now was Renata Mar. And that's all I have for today's episode. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on social media, especially um, on Instagram at treesnphds. Our Twitter handle is the same at trees and PhDs. We have a website, which is, you know, surprisingly the same treesnphds.com. and PhDs.com. And what I would love for you to do is to email me a gnarly poop story all I want at the end of this episode, because I'm finding that a lot of um, guests are shy and so when those guests are shy I want to have a section where I can just read off anonymous or non-anonymous gnarly poop stories that get emailed to me so please send those and any questions or comments or requests at trees and phds at gmail.com that is each word fully spelled out all together no hyphen no underscore no nothing just trees and phds at gmail.com Thank you, everybody. Um, My theme song is from Jose Calderon. The artwork is by Palomino Design, and this podcast is recorded and produced and hosted by me. So I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you, everybody.